what would you say from your perspective, what role will AI play in future studies or maybe also in foresight? So it's going to impact our work because it can replace a lot of our work. And I have to be honest and say it can. I know people keep saying, I think it's more story we tell ourselves that, you know, it's not creative. It doesn't have original thought, but God knows we all know a lot of people, including ourselves, who don't have original thought. Thanks for saying mm -hmm. that. That's exactly my opinion. That's, that's just, yeah. yeah, that's 100% yeah. my opinion. It was, Good, because sometimes people are like, yeah, but at least we can, I'm like, mm, really? I mean, if you listen to pop music yeah. today, really? Yeah, exactly. Is that original? Is it just, I mean, we know what rhythm works. We know, you know, what videos work and... It's not, no. Exactly. Innovation Rockstars. Innovation Rockstars. In this episode, we welcome Dasha Krivenos, CEO of the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. Hi, and welcome back to Innovation Rockstars. My name is Chris Mürot, and today I have a fantastic guest. I have Daria, or Dasha, Krivonos. I hope I spelled this correctly, or pronounced this correctly. Uh, she's as the CEO for Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies, uh, which is a multidisciplinary think tank and also advisory. Uh, she's, of course, an absolute expert in anything future studies and strategic foresight and also board member and advisory uh, for a few companies. So quite a lot of things going on. Um, thanks for taking the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Dasha. Well, thank you for having me. All right. And as always in this podcast, it, it has already become a habit. Um, we do have a 60-second introduction sprint. Um, that sprint is all about you, your career, your current role. So for the next 60 seconds, uh, the virtual stage is all yours. Let's go, Dasha. Um, well, I think uh, this is difficult. And I know I've, I've, I've seen the questions <laughs> before, but still, I think my career more than anything uh, speaks to the future we're heading into, if I have to be honest. So it's been accidental, but amazing. What I mean by that is that I started choosing one field. I'm an economist by background, classical economist, and I've done everything from risk in a global corporate, uh, working across nine different industries, 130 countries. I've done macro modeling of, um, of uh, trade lanes, commodities, etc. And then by sheer accident, I met the Institute and, um, and I joined them as an advisor uh, first uh, for a couple of months. And then again, somehow things just pan out in a way mm. that I ended up taking over as CEO. And I've been doing that for five years now. So I think my current role is a very humbling role as I get to work with a lot of very, very different people. And I know we'll get back to that in a little bit. But I think I spent 10 years perfecting my discipline. And then the last five, I've spent coming to terms with it not being the most important discipline in the world and maybe learning from some of the most interesting people I've ever met, but uh, from this privileged position of also getting to getting to set the stage and the and the direction for the institute. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, maybe maybe to get to know you just a little bit better, um, what I also like to do is to give you uh, three sentence starters. And uh, my ask uh, to you would be to complete uh, those sentence starters. Uh, pretty simple. And um, it's totally up to you if you answer long, short, fast, slow. Um, but let's see what happens. Uh, the first sentence starter is um, artificial general intelligence. So AGI is... Artificial general intelligence is 
several things. First of all, I think it is hyped. What I mean by that is that people confuse it with, uh, with the AI general. Um, and I think, of course, that's a, that's a very dangerous mistake to make. The second part is, I think, reading uh, the experts, and I'm not an expert, I think it is something that really is divisive. I mean, it's dividing the experts on whether or not it's going to be here in just a couple of years or never. Or So, you know, it's really, really hard to grasp. And I think the last thing it is, it is a complete game changer. And I think we're underestimating the effect, the potential impact on society and on us as a species. So I don't mean to sound alarmist, but I do think that while we discuss it as a, this fascinating technology, I think we're failing to think through the ultimate impact it may have on, on who we are, our way of life, and missing a golden opportunity to steer it for the better. I think there is a great part of urgency to it. I totally agree. And I guess one, one way how specifically OpenAI is trying to help with that is that they deliberately decided to release iterations toward a possible AGI early to anybody, right? So that's why they continuously release mm -hmm. the GPT models um, and also including ChatGPT as a user interface. Because in their perspective, it's easier to understand and to grasp what this might mean to us and for us if we see it's developing over time and being able to use it rather than at some point in time when it's available, just being confronted by it, maybe by surprise. Uh, interesting discussion, but I agree um, and with your position um, on, on that. And the second sentence starter would be a futurist is... A futurist is a professional... Uh, I guess a futurist is a professional explorer of potential outcomes. It's someone who for a living keeps asking what if, right? Uh, not what we're going to do about it, not uh, mm -hmm. then, but it's, it's someone who day in, day out keeps asking what if. And it's someone who is willing to entertain future trajectories that may not necessarily feel very good, But for as long as they're plausible, mm -hmm. you have to keep asking what if. So it's someone who can build several different plausible future trajectories, all underpinned with knowledge and data and trends, but they can be distinctly different. And someone who doesn't shy away from that fact, regardless of how these trajectories make you feel. Yeah, that, that's a very nice explanation. Maybe the, the most concise one uh, I've heard so far, because I think there is many misconceptions around that. Um, Uh, right. So, but maybe we can, we get to that later. Um, very interesting. And, and number three, um, sentence starter is to start my days, right. I, I leave my phone far away from where I sleep. <laughs> it's a new thing. And I know it's, an, it's not a new thing for other people, but it's a relatively new thing for me. So, you know, we're all, uh, our work life is floating into our private sphere. The phones are an amazing tool, but it's also, it's, it's a pitfall. So, I climbed Kilimanjaro this summer, and I know many people have done it, so it's not like it's... Um, I mean, it was quite an achievement for me, but it's uh, it's not the Everest. But more than anything, it's it's uh, seven or eight days without being connected to anything because there's no signal. And for the first few days, it's scary. And then you get used to it. And then by the time you come down from the mountain, you're actually not... 
uh, it feels like it's disturbing some sort of a mental peace mm -hmm. you found. So you open your apps and you see people have been texting you, how's the mountain, you know, friends getting a divorce while we were up there, etc. So I've actually piggybacked on that detox and I've taken the phone out of my bedroom. So from my day to start right as of this summer is to wake up to an old fashioned alarm clock that we bought um, and to wake up and take in what's happening around me, even just for 30 seconds and not necessarily reach for my phone, yeah. check the news, check my emails, etc. So yeah, which has become that's, a habit. That's my day starting for right. most, right? Yeah. That's, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. First thing. But if do. it's not within reach, yeah. it's not possible. And it's, it's, it's magic. It's a completely different way to wake up your brain. Mm -hmm. Probably a better one and a more healthy one, uh, to be uh, to be honest. Of course, yeah. Well, Can you tell me maybe more? Maybe not the answer you expected, but that's, <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah. Th that was no expectations at all. So ab absolutely. And, and and can you tell me more about the the Copenhagen uh, Institute for Future Studies? Um, what does it do? Um, I would love to, and thank you for asking. Um, we are, first of all, we're a very old think tank. So we sound like a public institution, but we're not. So I guess it originally was given that name to give it some, some weight and credibility, but we're 54 years old. And it's funny to be bragging about history when you work with the future, but it says something about our approach, which means we never say anything for certain, or we try not to at least. Um, but we work with mega trends. We work with these long-term trajectories, which means we're hardly ever wrong because we never say anything specific. But it's about now we're roughly 30 people, give and take. Uh, and between us, we have 19 different professional backgrounds. Mm -hmm. We have roughly 11 nationalities. And of course, that means that more than anything, we are this melting pot of views of the world. And again, this is just... This is just a moment in time, right? So your profession is a label, your nationality is a label, and be behind that, there's nine, there's 30 different pathways to where we are now. So yeah. people bring all of their experience, and I think we're a place where, if you're young, we're gonna we're gonna benefit from your youth. If you've been there for a long time, we're gonna benefit from your experience. If you're from a small country, we're gonna be stress tested on whether or not we're only doing things from our part of the world, etc. So it's a place that thinks outside the box. Mm -hmm. I sometimes call it the CERN of trends. And what I mean by that is like a particle collider. So if I, as an economist, I would throw out an idea and say, you know, I think the world is going to go this way, given the geopolitics, you know, I will stay within my own amity. But then it's going to collide with a, soci a sociologist. It's going to collide with a historian. Mm -hmm. And the philosopher is going to have a go. And then through all of these colliders, in the end, we're going to shape a more credible vision for what this particular trajectory could mean, um, because then it has been challenged by how is society going to respond. It has been challenged by the young people saying the next generation is not going to perceive it that way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so the institute is an is an NGO. We are an independent think tank. We're fully self funded completely independent of anything and we are an intellectual playground and we are basically a trend collider just like CERN but with with brains and ideas and I think it's it's very interesting um, uh, you've mentioned it in the beginning you, you do have a strong economics background um, right and I, I do suspect that a large part of your team um, at the Institute is, is very creative and obviously as you mentioned very diverse uh, many different backgrounds many different, labels as you said so now um in in the role of its uh, ceo and given your background um 
what's what's your what's your take and your key learnings in leading you know such a diverse team and, and the institute what what is your strongest learnings in that Oh, there's so many. I think, first of all, as I said, uh, I joined from a big corporate. I joined from one of the biggest companies in Denmark, a global leader in its field. So Maersk is the biggest shipping company in the world yep. still. So, of course, I came I came with a, um, with a perception of how things should be and what are the right disciplines, what matters, etc. And so the first learning for me was that my discipline, if not inferior, then it's narrow. Mm-hmm. So this whole expert problem, which I also often mention on my talks, like experts don't know what they don't know. So the best thing you can do to them is expose them to experts within something completely different and say there's, you know, there's different ways of solving things. So my first learning was that there's no one discipline in the world that can have a credible view of what the future is going to be like. Because the fewer people you ask and the more certain they feel, the more wrong you are. That was a learning. And I come from a world where I had to forecast you know, long-term models, etc. So that was that was a learning. The second part is um, that uh, if, and I use that also, we have these cognitive biases, is that if you're discussing something very complex and people agree too soon, it means someone is lying or someone is missing, right? So always need to, you, of course, if you're discussing something that needs to be done next week, maybe it's easy, you know, you arrive at or something. But if you're discussing what the world will be like in 10 years, you better disagree, mm-hmm. So as uncomfortable as it is to be in a leadership position, to sometimes have a, have people disagree with you day in, day out, all day long, disagree with each other. So the more difficult it is for me to make a decision based on a dialogue, the better the dialogue we've had. Um, and then, of course, I mean, just on a personal note, since this is still a, a bit of a personal conversation... For me to lead so many different people, it's tapping into very all, I mean, different parts of my personality, my leadership style. Some of these parts I didn't even have. They had to be developed and trained throughout because these are people so different from me. If you come from a corporate world, there's still a profile, right? So you may be different and you may look different and, you know, have different favorite foods, but you will have commonalities in your profiles. Here, there's a lot of very different people. So I think from a leadership position, it's probably the most challenging, but also the most rewarding thing I've ever done because it's it's basically forced me to develop features I didn't have and really sharpen those that, that, that have been uh, have been asked for. It's interesting that you use the word uh, features, um, but maybe that's for, for another conversation. Um, in, in, a, in an earlier conversation, you said something that that's, uh, stuck with me. Uh, you said that... Um, The future is always important, but never urgent. And that's interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, actually, uh, I mean exactly that. So, um, and when we spoke last time, we also kind of pulled a little bit more in my my background. Um, I think, remember, I think we also discussed this, there's this kid's uh, brain teaser, right? Saying you're running a race and you overtake the, the second in line. Uh, what number are you in the race? And the answer is that you're still second in the race. Yep. I mean, and that's what happens to the future all the time. And I, I base that on the conversations we've had with my former employer and some of the most senior management mm-hmm. teams, meetings, etc. And I, for four and a half years, I headed up the enterprise risk team. So, so risk shares that characteristic with the future that it's extremely important. But I could see from the time allocated during the meetings and the, the management um, attention, etc., it was never really urgent. It was always pushed to another day or, 
you know, we're going to have to discuss something at length, so we're going to shorten the time for risk, etc. And the future shares that feelings or that future because every time you would discuss the future and they would, everybody would agree that it's extremely important. We need to know where we're in 10 years. Where's the? But you know what? We have these quarterly results or we have this incident in a plant yeah. if you have uh, factories or, you know, so it always has to give up the first place to something else that needs to be discussed, decided, and it's going to take up management attention, but it will remain important until it's suddenly urgent, but it's because it's not the future anymore, then it really hits you as the present. So it's always important. Everybody says it's important, but it's never treated as something urgent. I think you could say similar things about, um, you know, a, a discipline where we are uh, very much at home, uh, which is innovation and innovation management. Uh, we see, we see similar, similar developments. Um, but why, why do you think, why do you think there is so little urgency about that future. I mean, sure, it, yes, there is, I agree. And, you know, Eisenhower matrix, important and urgent. And then you say, okay, sure, it's always important. It's never urgent. What do you think is the reason for that? Because it's not tangible, because it's happening anyways. What? Are, why is it not urgent? Well, I think it's several things. I think, first of all, it's, um, as people, we have a tendency to overrate change in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. So it's this... We always feel that, what it, first of all, we feel that it's not that bad. You know, it's sometime, sometime in the future. We think we disconnect from our future selves. Um, but this thing right here is right now, right? So again, if I have to run a marathon a year from now, I'll keep pushing the preparation because, you know, I have a year. And mm -hmm. um, So that's the second bit. I always, with the future, we feel like we still have time to respond. But this here and now is, it calls for action right now. Problem is resources are zero-sum game. So if you spend if you spend them on now, you're not going to spend them on the future. It's just as simple as that. So you need to be very, very structured and very disciplined about allocating time to address something that it remains 10 years out in the future. Because if you don't do it now, it's going to be nine years, then eight years, then, and then suddenly it's going to make it to the urgent, but then it's too late. So I think, um, so it's not lack of will, but it's a little bit like risk. So unless it happens, it's invisible. You can all agree, oh, we hope this is not going to happen. But it's it's an invisible gain um, that is somewhere out in the future and, and we have a hard time connecting with it emotionally and especially allocating the proper time to do it. What, what we see specifically happening in private companies um, at an increased uh, frequency is, you know, new roles popping up, you know, called foresight managers or corporate foresight managers or things like that, which I think is a good um, a good step, maybe even a, a good step in the right direction. But then, you know, they tend to be in the job for maybe a year or two, maybe three, depending on the company and on the on the speed of change or the, the rate of change for that company. And then they run into problems um, in proving and communicating the value of the role. Uh, because it's, you know, they also tend to not position themselves, obviously, because sometimes it's just not possible, you know, in one way or the other, they create options, they open up possible future trajectories, like this could happen or that, but obviously the business needs to decide, so product management or technology or R&D or whomever needs to decide, right? And they're, yes, they're understood as internal consultants, maybe as advisors, but for example, in times where the economy is contracting to a certain extent, which we see right now in 2023, um, it's sometimes hard for them to justify their impact and their influence in the now, which is exactly what, what we discussed right now. 
Um, are you seeing the same things if you're working with private companies or is, is it from your view viewpoint a different thing? No, absolutely. I think absolutely. And as also, so we had a, an interview in one of the biggest Danish dailies this summer and I was asked, so, you know, in light of COVID and Ukraine and all of that, do you feel that people are more ready for change? Are they more vigilant? Are they, you know, are they... And I, frankly, and again, this is a personal opinion, but the, the, the senior, you know, CXOs that I, I sometimes speak with or work with, there seems to be a uh, a paradox of there's there's uncertainty fatigue. Mm. So rather than being more alert, people are like, can we just please go back to normal? So I, I absolutely, I think that it is kind of the same. So the people working with the long term have a really hard time getting through to to whoever it is because you kind of have to prove your worth now but it's and this is where i say so risk management shares that feature is like yeah but how do you how do you measure something that didn't happen basically yeah, right exactly. so you know we evaded all yes. these risks but yes. but you know what if you never know so it's it's uh, all else equal kind of doesn't work in the real world right you can't measure these things and i, I can see the foresight practitioners running into the same problem yep. but I have to be honest, a little bit like risk, it also depends on where in the organization you anchor it because it, it can be failure by design. And I have the biggest respect for people who work with law and lawyers. Um, but the moment you put risk management under the legal structure, under the CEO, for instance, then legal, you know, it becomes compliance. It becomes a checklist. It's a passive, basically ensuring that you're compliant with something it's... I'm not going to say it's unambitious because it's not fair to the people who do all the hard work, but it's not proper risk management, right? Then you're just checking a process. You're not actually checking for risk. No. And I, I used to be in shipping and one of our com competitors, one of their ships broke in half, but it was fully compliant with the class requirements. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. there's a difference between being compliant and sufficient. And I think this is what some of the foresight practitioners also run into is like, yeah, we, you know, you're somewhere... In, in a structure that we'll call you when we need you, kind of. And yeah, so, oh, this is going to happen in 10 years, but we're looking at an investment in three mm. months. So thanks. So I think it's with the best of intentions, but it's the, the organizations haven't matured to fully capture the value of such people or such roles. Um, and then they just run, they basically run out of steam before they even started, which is a shame. It is certainly with the best intentions, of course. Um, but there's two things to that. One, one is, um, you know, the, yeah can we get back to you know the normal um we, we've yeah we've experienced this also in many different um uh, conversations but you know we also need to be honest there will be no old normal that's gone this is never going to come back um and the thing we are seeing right now despite maybe some economic turmoil sure i agree but you know that's actually normal uh times with prosperity and then times with contraction is super normal That is normality. Yeah. Um, if you just have a short-term horizon and look at maybe two, three, five years, because that's what your work contract is for, well, yes, then maybe you're not as you know used you're not used to those waves. Um, but that's actually normality, um, and maybe the amplitude is different. I agree, but that's actually what's normal. Um, and that's one thing. And, and the second thing, um, b based on the conversations you have, what, what do you think is the best, or where have you seen foresight practitioners being? from an org design perspective, being positioned the most effective uh, in an organization? Well, I think, of course, if you have a visionary CEO, I mean, someone mm -hmm. who has to look beyond the numbers. And again, I've, I've worked in a finance department for 10 years, so it's it's not at all neglecting that. But but I think these are, the. I think if you want to make proper use of foresight, you need to disconnect 
the whole PNL thing, at least for a little bit. You need to be able to entertain qualitative discussions, and that that doesn't happen in a CFO track. No, you, that that is all. You need to turn it into some sort of either a revenue or cash flow, or you know, which which are fair disciplines. But th this is about considering things that haven't happened yet and may never happen, but you need to be ready for them. So I think the first thing you can do is. Uh, remove the constraints of having to deliver on something right here and right now. Um, so I would guess the CEO track is probably the better track because this is someone who's supposed to be thinking wider. The second thing I would probably, uh, I guess my take would be that it should have some sort of connection to the board because the board are actually stewards of the longevity of a company, right? So even the CEO still has to deliver every month, every quarter, every year, while the board transcends that, both in, in their, I mean, how, the terms that they serve, and they usually work across different CEOs, right, in time. Yes. So I'd probably have a dotted line or some sort of conversations on board level because these are the stewards of the broader future of a company. Um, so, yeah, so that, I think that would be the biggest success factor. And I think you need the mandate and you need very uh, uh, articulated support from the top saying, we believe this this role adds value and they should be in the room, despite the fact that they're not going to give you the best guess of, uh, you know, of a whack or um, uh, the discounted rates for anything over the next three months. Yeah. To the board, that that's very interesting. That That's a very interesting um, perspective. And, you know, we, we, we've got so much going on at the same time, basically right now, we, we've uh, just mentioned the global challenges. You name it, you get it. Climate change, political instability, uh, inflation going wild for some time, uh, substantial increase in monetary supply, and so on and so on. Um, and of course, now we have the AI or maybe the even more advanced AGI discussions. But there's also other technological advancements aside from AI. It's just hyped right now. Um, from what you've seen and you've worked across a lot of industries, a lot of organizations, probably a lot of leaders too. Um, how, how would you say that future studies can help organizations and then at the broader scale, maybe also society prepare and adapt? Because yes, it's plausible futures, um, it's plausible trajectories, but how does it help you actually to be prepared for that in the future when it hits? Um, well, I think f the first thing future studies does, again, um, this is my interpretation because I'm, uh, uh, I come out of the corporate sector, right? So I have many colleagues who've only done foresight and are really, really good at that as a discipline. So the shortcomings I have in foresight as a discipline, I then hopefully make up for because I can bring it into the real world from the corporate side. Um, so I think what future studies do more than anything is that they challenge your wishful thinking. And it shines light on the blind angles. So it forces people to disconnect from a preferable future. Because no matter what we do, even if you invite the risk team into the conversation, which people rarely do. I mean, as when I left, I was told that behind our backs, we were called the business preventing office. Yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> which is not really fair. But so I think um, what future studies managed to do, what, what foresight can do is... Um, forcing every decision maker to do, to consider and imagine a different outcome than that what what they're planning for and say okay this is great because you got usually most companies fall in love with the with the future 
they plan towards it and very quickly they switch to internal focus like what do we need to do what system should we have in place to capture all this and uh, who should we employ etc so they completely forget the external environment so I think it forces you to consider what needs to be true and I think that's the most important part of a conversation it's not about how many uh, headquarters you need to have or where should it be I mean when you fall in love with the trajectory, you put yourself, you know, you, you decide on a strategy, park the strategy. And then in this environment, close your eyes, basically step into a room together and say, okay, let's be honest and let's describe what needs to be true in the external environment for this to be a success. And very quickly, you find out that there's, so I try to, I usually dissect it in two ways. So there will be three different things that need to be true. Uh, and there'll be pillars supporting this journey for you, right? And you will really, you'll quickly realize that some of these developments you can control. Even some of them is external market developments. You're a big player, you may actually be able to impact the market with some things. Then there will be a whole range of things which you cannot control, but you have a pretty good idea where they're going, you know, like some of the megatrends. And then there's going to be a big group of assumptions that you can't control. And if you're honest with yourself, you actually have no idea where they're going. That's the one dissection. So first of all, you need to be honest about these three groups and say some things we can control, some things we can't, but we can map them. And the last but part is basically it's just wishful thinking. And you have to be vigilant if that starts to move out of what you wanted it to be. The second way to dissect it is most strategies, most future visions, assume three different things without knowing it. They assume that some things will continue to develop you know, be, be technology or urbanization or so some things will need to continue to develop. There will be some things they need to stop from developing, which is a little bit. And I'll give you an example in a little bit. And it's, it's very uh, it's, it's an unconscious thing. And then you have to check yourself saying, OK, how realistic is it that whatever this trend was is going to stop in its tracks? And last but not least, there are some things they actually need to go backwards. And then you can also sit down and check yourself. So what say if you are a Tesla so if you put all your eggs in the basket of electrical vehicles, you're going to need the battery development to continue and hopefully peak and, you know, progress or not peak, but progress. You're going to need the hydrogen development to stop because that's, that's the, that's basically the competition, right? Maybe we'll have hydrogen cars and you need uh, the next generation to go, to go back on our tracks of sharing and using public transportation you need to go back to being who we were and buy four vehicles per household, right? So if you're an electric vehicle producer, there's actually things you need to develop, things that need to stop developing, and there are things that need to go backwards. And that's rarely something people consider that vigilantly, but they should because how realistic is it that something will stop and how realistic is it that something is going to go back? If you're a dictator, you want democracy to go back. Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. Again, so yeah. your whole strategy rests on something regressing. But we never really discuss it in the open. And I think that's what foresight can do. It can force you to look at these things in these categories and then consider what should you be looking out for. It's interesting because uh, in the society right now, you know, the discussion around artificial intelligence basically implies that it's going to develop um, um, further and further and further. But it's, I just see rare discussions about what if that's not the case. What if, and maybe for some some capacity reasons, <clears throat> not because the algorithms are there, but maybe just because we will hit a natural limit of processing power, graphical units, and whatever this runs on. Um, and, you know, personal disclaimer, I'm a big, I, I think it will have tremendous change. Um, um, it's already, ha in fact, having tremendous change on, on anything. 
in any area in life, including business, right? But what if not? Um, and, and the discussion is totally geared to, yeah, we're going to face AGI pretty much soon, so let's talk about universal basic income because there will be no jobs anymore. And we're kind of assuming that's the, maybe not even the preferable, but the only trajectory this is going into and maybe the majority of the public discussion is going into that direction. So you would step in, for example, and say, well, there is different outcomes um, that this could have, and have you ever considered them before? And that's exactly it. So we would uh, we would present alternatives yeah. to the trajectories that people are imagining now. And I think it's funny you say that, and that's the thing. So first of all, again, I'm not an engineer. So the little I know, I know from you know the popular literature. Again, so people who don't work with this on a daily basis, they, they actually don't know what AGI is, what it could mean, but everybody's like, yeah, it's going to be here any minute now. The scary part is we're seeing... And if I can step back a little bit to, to the technology discussion, I think for me, I think we're being naive about technology. What I mean by that is we keep moving the goalpost. You know, when Deep Blue beat Kasparov, everybody was shocked. There's this famous picture. You see all these, I'm going to say tech or chess enthusiasts, nerds in the background. They're like, whoa, oh my God, he, he actually lost the return match. But we move the goalpost saying... Mm-hmm. Okay, chess is just one discipline. Then it, you know, then machines could then they pass the the Turing test, and you know, okay, fine, that's not intelligence either. And now we're seeing the next versions of, of OpenAI or the language models. I mean, the, the experts are basically saying we're seeing some sort of sentient thought, or you know, it's basically reflecting on I don't want to die, or you know, the Google people who left. Um, and we keep saying, yeah, but it's just an algorithm, and then and that that makes me question. Like, then what are we? I mean. Mm-hmm. We have no idea what how neural networks work, so maybe yeah. we're gonna miss the moment when it's here because we keep telling ourselves that's not really it. You know, we we don't recognize it for what it is. So I have a concern that we're being naive and we keep moving the goalpost on something. You know, I'm not a believer, but basically, if Jesus came back today for real, he'd end up in a mental asylum <laughs> because that's how we would <laughs> greet him. It's like you're what? Let's we can help you with this. You know, so I think we we keep changing the the. Um, we keep changing our vision for what AGI will be, which means it could easily arrive here in a month and we wouldn't even know. We keep saying, oh, but that's not really it. So that was a little bit of a of a deviation. But I think, and, but that's back yeah. to your question saying for now, and I agree with you that some of some said, you know, it's going to take over everything, but I, there's been my, my challenge with the AI discussion, maybe exactly because I'm not a tech expert in layman's terms, at least in Denmark and in Scandinavia, I think it's been, polarized for at mm. least for, we, we wasted the first seven eight months and we can say happy birthday to ai in the general public now right because yes. it's about a year ago yes. um maybe it's very maybe it'll be symbolic to uh to write uh to to actually light a candle for different reasons but um but the discussion has been paperclip so we're all gonna die it's gonna turn all of us any carbon atom it's gonna find would be turned into a paperclip and then there's the other ones which is gonna solve everything and all we need to do is figure out what to do with our lives so we don't get depressed because we have nothing to do. I think the, the real world is going to be somewhere in the middle. But we've wasted so much time being either scared or utopically excited that we didn't get to discuss this. Not properly. So I think the main trajectory that I would like people to consider now is actually what happens in between. So rather than do the extremes, say, what can AI do? What will be, the, what will be its pathway through society? Because it's, imagine it's a river. How is it going to flow through society, in education, in social elements, in work, in health, in public administration? So just let these rivers run and see how do we actually see them making their way through it and what impact are they going to have throughout? I mean, 
you know, uh, be, being humans, um, and humans are attracted to fantastic stories, uh, right, to the extreme stories. So I, I at least this attributes to the question of why it's the doom or um, utopia. Uh, so that's uh, that's certainly certainly a factor. But what, what would you say from your perspective, what role will AI play in future studies or maybe also in foresight? Um, see, I was thinking about it when I when we discussed it, when I saw the question, because uh, I fell into the trap of saying it will be something we will be applying foresight on, mm -hmm. right? So what I mean by that is that we're going to use our discipline to explore how is it going to impact society. It's not going to impact us, really. And then I was thinking about it, it's like, okay, now I'm falling into the same trap as everybody else. Um, I'm not really considering the what if for us. So I can see we are going to have to uh, use it as a tool for sure, mm -hmm. because others will. We're going to have to find the edge it doesn't have, because there's many things it can do that we do now. No doubt. If you do it right, I mean... It's like, no, I can't make rap music, but, you know, I can, with the help of AI, I can actually make rap music. It's not going to be as good as the original, but it's, you know, it will be out there, which means people now can do foresight without us. Mm -hmm. So we need to consider this critical angle of, of how do we then add value. So it's going to impact our work because it can replace a lot of our work. And I have to be honest and say it can. I know people keep saying, I think it's more story we tell ourselves that, you know, it's not creative. It doesn't have original thought, but... God knows we all know a lot of people, including ourselves, who don't have original thoughts. Thanks for saying I mean, that. That's exactly my opinion. Let's, let's just, yeah. Yeah, that's 100% yeah. my opinion. It was yeah. Good, because sometimes people are like, yeah, but at least we can, I'm like, mm, really? I mean, if you listen to pop music yeah. today, really? Yeah, exactly. Is that original? Is it just, I mean, we know what rhythm works. We know, you know, what videos work. and It's not. No. Exactly. So I think it will impact our own work. No, sure. Uh, no doubt. Uh, it can do a lot of what we do in terms of at least processing and of course, it will also create more work because, again, as you said, this is one of the big unknowns. And had you spoken to me in October last year or maybe even mid-November last year, I would say I don't think technology changes much in the world, period. And I would be very unpopular for saying it because I'm a futurist. I should be thinking about cyborgs and flying cars. And we've always been discussing flying cars. Every time we discuss the future, we go to science fiction. And science fiction is very often techie. And I sometimes jokingly say anyone with a pacemaker is a cyborg. I mean, they have arrived. Let's just accept it, basically. So until recently, I would probably say technology is a force multiplier and very few technologies have changed the world. Yes, I can now FaceTime anybody, but there's still relatives in the US I never talked to because no technology in the world is making me miss them more. Yeah. You know, the technology is there, but the communication is not until AI arrived. So AI will be something we will be working with to explore what it's going to do to societal structures, companies, etc., but it's also something that's going to be working with us because it's going to impact the way we work and the fact that a lot of what we do can actually be replaced. And for the foreseeable future, I guess it would be interesting to understand how it's progressing, for example, in futures um, studies and foresight tasks. At least I'm not aware of any study that can be a qualitative one or even maybe a quantitative one, doesn't really matter, that's comparing um you know, the the output, the outcomes, maybe even the creativity uh, in such areas, so in, in future studies and in foresight areas. I've seen some other studies where an, an, AGI, an, AGI, where an AI, and basically just a large language model, to be frank, already outperformed 
human creativity of what they called an average human, whatever an average human is, to be fair. I mean, nobody of us is an average human, right? But in that study, they had to do it um, and, 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 and um, uh, cluster uh, those groups. Um, and yeah, it was actually coming up with more distinct and more original ideas than the largest group and than the average group of humans in that study, which is interesting. Um, so I don't know if we can claim creativity to be the thing um, and the capability of humans alone anymore. Um, but certainly, uh, we'll, we'll have to see. I agree. I would say, I mean, I know we treat creativity as a divine feature or a div some sort of divine gift, which is, I mean, outside the Mozarts and etc. Yes, sure. that would, um, if I would, if, if I were a believer, I would say sure. this is divine because you, you just can't explain where this is coming from. But for the rest of it, it's a very nice evolutionary uh, skill to say, hmm, how should I use this rock to break a nut? I mean, that's creativity. That's basically connecting, I mean, connecting things in the brain that are not usually connected and saying, how could I do this differently? I mean, but I, I, so I live very close to the water, which is fantastic, but I've seen seagulls drop uh, shells from high altitude on the sidewalk, making sure they break. So that's pretty creative, right? So we're not, it's not unique to us in that yeah. sense. Um, so I would say creativity is a very, very nice skill for doing things in ways they haven't been done before, but based on pre-existing knowledge, except for these glitches in nature, we get Mozart, Einstein, etc. But the rest of it is just a, it's just a way of connecting existing knowledge and experience in new ways. And animals do it. I mean, animals do it. And and to be frank, if 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 we talk about math and physics and all this stuff, we didn't invent that. We just discovered it. Um, so yeah. you know that that's the thing. Um, and um, yeah, this is going to lead us um, into a completely uh, different route. Um, and I don't make, I want to make sure we're maybe not going down this path um, in this in this episode. Um, and we are close to to the end of this episode, but um, we actually have a new tradition uh, on this podcast, and uh, which is that the previous guest leaves a question for the next guest without knowing who my next guest is and what we're going to talk mm -hmm. about. Um, so um, and the previous guest uh, left the following question for you. The question is. What was your career aspiration as a child and why? Yeah. Um, yeah, the microphone is still working. I'm just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I think when I was a child, I was really much, I was very much into engineering stuff, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. So um, it was never a conscious thing. But I think the moment I became conscious, I wanted to do something completely different. I, I was born in the Soviet Union and I was born in a time where uh, commercial flight was not normal. So people didn't fly much, which means when someone from your family would fly, you would put on nice clothes and the entire family would go to the airport to see you off and it would be tears. And, you know, and then when they arrived, they, everybody went to meet you and there would be tears again. So as crazy as it sounds, well, you did ask me, I always wanted to work in an airport because of all the emotion. Sure. Um, and it didn't really matter doing what, but then adding the engineering bit to it. I think I've always wanted to do something with engineering and airports. That That's fair. Um, and it, <laughs> at, at least you had some career aspiration <laughs> as a child, to be fair. Um, interesting. Okay. And if, if you look back on your professional career so far, um, with all the sums... Um, that you've experienced, um, not necessarily only um, and only in, in quotation marks, 
uh, within the Institute, what would you say was your greatest innovation rockstar moment, your rockstar moment so far? Um, so my biggest rockstar moment to stay in, in, in with the actual word rockstar, I think I played an amazing concert, if you will, ish with a microphone that wasn't on. What I mean by that is that in my former life with risk, mm -hmm. um, we did a big study on large vessels. So right now the, the largest vessels, container vessels, they're almost 400 meters long, yeah. right? So this is half a kilometer of ship. It's a, amazing machines. Um, and we mapped out a scenario uh, of what would happen if one of our vessels got stuck in the Suez Canal and blocked it. Mm -hmm. And we did, this was before I learned about foresight really. So we, you know, we did the discipline of saying, we went progressively through a logic of this could happen and this could happen. So basically the Swiss cheese diagram. And then we ended up saying one of our vessels could be blocking one of the major pathways of global trade. And then I came down with my playlist to my colleagues working with shipping, you know, basically the container liner. And we were, if not laughed out of the room, but almost. Mm. Because they basically asked me, how when have you ever been on a ship? You know, nothing about it, blah, blah, blah. You know, so this was like, I, but I, you know, I have this playlist and it's amazing. And, but the mic wasn't on because they were, they went for the guy, mm -hmm. the girl, the mm -hmm. messenger saying, oh, you're corporate, you're young, you've never been yeah, on a uh, ship. This can't happen. A couple of years later, I turn on the news. Luckily, it's not a Maersk vessel, <laughs> somebody else. There is a vessel blocking the Suez Canal. So for me, I may have been the one of the few people who actually had my arms a little bit mm -hmm. in the air, just, you know, unfairly. So my rock star moment with a silent moment where we'd done everything right, we've thought out the box, we did the risk perspective, we could explain the entire journey of plausible events, but the notion and the message was ignored because yeah. of who delivered it and how little it fit with other people's reality. And maybe that's a, a nice way to tie in the knot back to what we started with saying, you have to be able to say, what if? You really have to, because if you can't, if you can't deny every plausible step in the journey, then you you're, you're forced to look at the outcome, no matter how, how unpleasant it must feel. Because if you're not, you're failing on your job. And sometimes a gut feeling in the management mm -hmm. room is just a stomach flu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it certainly is. So that's a great rockstar moment. I, 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 I'm hesitant to call it an I told you so uh, moment, um, but luckily it didn't, didn't uh, you know, play out for Maersk, um, but in either company. But yeah, uh, congratulations, probably a very defining moment um, in, in the career, also also um, you know, from, from a psychology perspective. And, and that's it for this episode. Um, Dasha, thanks so much for being my guest. Um, it was a pleasure and a very interesting conversation. Um, thanks for investing the time. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. And to everybody listening or watching, if you enjoyed this show, simply leave us a comment or drop us an email at info at innovationrockstars.show. Now that's it. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody, and bye-bye. This was Innovation Rockstar Dasha Krivenos of the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies on the future role of AI in foresight and innovation, as well as some personal key learnings from her leadership role at the Institute for Future Studies. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Don't hesitate to reach out to us at info at innovationrockstars.show with your feedback, comments, or questions. And if you're hungry for more inspiring innovation stories, be sure to check out our website at www.innovationrockstars.show or browse through our Innovation Rockstars channel on all major podcast platforms. 